Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're finishing the trilogy of episodes over the reign of Charles of Francia, aka Charlemagne. Previously, we covered Charlemagne's life up through his conquest of most of Western Europe. We also took a look at the legends that would come to surround his rule, mostly thanks to the brutal defeat he faced at the Battle of Roncesvalles Pass. But Charlemagne is most well known as the Holy Roman Emperor. The first Holy Roman Emperor. So we'll have to figure out how he was given such an insane title, what that title actually meant, and what Charles would do with that new power. Later, we'll also take a look at how the HRE developed over the centuries until it basically just became modern-day Germany. It's a long story with a very rocky history. Was it Rome? Was it even holy? And finally, we'll also have to talk about what happened with the rest of Charlemagne's realm after his death, because that, apart from the Holy Roman Empire, is a whole other can of worms that needs to be opened. There's actually a lot we have to finish up from the first episode over Charlemagne, and not a whole lot of time to do it all. So without further ado, let's continue the story. We're going to pick up not in Francia or Rome, but very briefly in Constantinople near the turn of the 9th century CE in Father of Europe, Part 2, Emperor Charles of Rome. <laughs> No background history lesson this time around because we're going to be doing a lot of explanations at the end of the episode. So kicking things right off. At the beginning of the year 797 CE, there was still very much a Roman Emperor despite the fact that the Western Roman Empire had fallen a few centuries beforehand. Well, that's because the Roman Empire still very much existed, but we just call it the Byzantine Empire, aka the Eastern Roman Empire. This makes sense considering they never called themselves the Byzantine Empire. To the empire ruling out of Constantinople, they were very much still the Roman Empire, just ruling from almost 1,000 miles away from the original city. The Roman Emperor was Constantine VI. After a coup led by his own mother, Constantine was deposed. The new leader of Rome was Empress Irene, Constantine's mother who had just deposed him. Seeing as how nobility and deceitful plots go hand in hand, Irene was just accepted as the new Empress of the Romans. There was just one problem. The current Pope, Leo III, did not recognize Irene as the legitimate ruler of the Romans. He still held the belief that Constantine VI was Emperor of Rome, even though it's not even certain if Irene's son was still alive at this point. It's also believed that Pope Leo just didn't want a woman calling the shots in Constantinople. So he began looking around for other options of who to back as new legitimate leader of Rome. For the people still in the actual city of Rome, there was only one choice for this honor. Charlemagne. Ironically enough, Charlemagne was kinda cool with Irene being empress. In fact, the two had almost been related. When Constantine VI was younger, and before he was emperor, Irene had recognized the power and influence of Charlemagne out west. She thought it could be possibly a good idea to unite the Frankish kingdom with the Eastern Roman Empire. If that had actually happened, man, Europe sure would have been different. Irene had proposed marrying Constantine to one of Charlemagne's daughters. However, Irene would later call off the engagement for unknown reasons. 
Anyways, Leo wanted someone else as leader of the Romans, and just in general, he really needed a victory under his belt. Leo's predecessor was Pope Adrian I. Adrian had been a Roman noble and at the time of his death was the second longest reigning pope in history, after St. Peter as the first pope. Adrian had been around for most of Charlemagne's rise to power. When Pope Adrian died in 795, it was a very quick election cycle where Leo was chosen as the new Bishop of Rome. In fact, Leo was elected the day Adrian was buried. This created a lot of resentment around the close followers of Pope Adrian, aka the nobility of Rome. This faction believed that only Roman nobility should be elected as Pope, which is dumb. In 799, the nobility decided they would force Leo out of power and attacked him out on the streets of the city. The Pope was only saved from being killed on the spot by the intervention of Charlemagne's Missi Dominici, Latin for Lord's Envoy, which was a position that acted as advisors in regions of the kingdom that were too far away from Charlemagne's seat of power, the city of Aachen in modern-day Germany. Charlemagne's allies managed to get Leo out of Rome and brought him north into Germany. Charlemagne was then currently out on a military campaign, his army stationed near the city of Paderborn. After receiving the Pope with all honors, Charlemagne then sent for Leo's enemies, hoping that he could smooth over things between the two factions in Rome. Unfortunately, things did not get smoothed out completely, but at the very least, Leo's enemies weren't actively trying to kill him. So the Pope returned to Rome, sending an invitation for Charlemagne to join him. The King of the Franks was originally hesitant to go, but after discussing the matter with his advisors, decided to join Leo in Rome. So, in November of 800, Charlemagne arrived in the city of Rome as King of the Franks and Lombards. However, he would leave that city as a completely different man. December of 800, Charlemagne convened a synod, basically a religious court-slash-meeting, in order to absolve Leo of alleged crimes the Pope's enemies had hurled his way. As part of the synod, Leo swore an oath of allegiance to Charlemagne. This, perhaps unbeknownst to Leo, would cripple the papacy for at least the next several centuries. He had essentially given Charlemagne power over him and the Vatican. From Charlemagne's contemporary biography, it was made to seem like the king didn't really understand what all this meant. Everything changed on Christmas Day 800 CE. Charlemagne was in St. Peter's Basilica praying. Suddenly, he was swarmed by the Pope and several other members of the church. As Charlemagne was kneeling, Leo swooped in and placed a crown on the king's head. With this single action, Leo proclaimed that Charles was now the new emperor of Rome a new Rome united under the banner of the Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Empire. Once again, according to Charlemagne's biography, the new emperor was completely blindsided by this action. He would later say that if he had known Pope Leo planned on giving him the crown, he would have refused it. However, that's not really how things probably went down. Did Leo suddenly just place a crown on Charles's head? Yeah, probably. But was this an action that was completely out of left field? Almost certainly not. It's generally believed these days that Leo and Charles, or at least his advisors, had discussed crowning the Frankish king as a new Roman emperor ever since Empress Irene took the throne in 797. So what does this mean in the immediate present? Well, 
technically nothing. It's not like Charlemagne suddenly gained a bevy of new powers now that Leo had proclaimed him as emperor. I mean, Charles was basically already an emperor as he had most of Western Europe under his control, he had just never called himself one. He didn't gain any new territory, didn't suddenly gain recognition from every other nation around him. Really, the only new change was that he modified the Frankish currency to say Carolus Imperator Augustus. However, this had greater implications towards the relationship of the East and the West. The Byzantines still very much saw themselves as the Roman Empire. Not a continuation, not chapter 2. No, they were Rome. Meanwhile, the Franks and the church saw them as Greeks playing at being Rome. Charles was the true successor to Constantine VI, not Irene. This created a problem where you had two separate nations claiming to be Rome. Luckily, Charlemagne was vaguely smart about all this. He kept referring to himself as emperor governing over the Roman Empire. Meanwhile, Irene and other Byzantine rulers could actually refer to themselves as the Roman Emperor. Things were almost solved completely in 802 when, after a couple years of tense political negotiations, Charlemagne wrote to Irene and suggested they could just join the two halves of Europe together by getting married. Unfortunately, the letter arrived too late. In October of that year, Irene was deposed as Empress of Rome. The problem of who would actually be the true Rome would continue on for a bit longer. Despite his new role as Emperor, Charlemagne still had a couple old thorns in his side to deal with. The main one was the Saxons. Charlemagne had been at war with Saxony in modern day Germany since 772. After the baptism and sudden disappearance of the Saxon leader Wittekind in 785, Charlemagne had more or less conquered the region. However, there were still a couple groups within Saxony that weren't keen on letting go of their land that easily. The Angrian people of Saxony made one final attempt at a rebellion in 804, but by that point the yet-to-be-converted Saxons had lost so much power that there wasn't really all that much they could do. Around this time, Charlemagne also had a set of laws written up titled the Lex Saxonum, these laws were created as an attempt to bridge the old customs of the pagan Saxons with the Christian laws and values of their new Frankish overlords. The laws were heavily biased in the favor of Christianity as it created several bishoprics throughout Saxony, but it helped lead to some form of peace. It seemed as if the Saxons had truly been pacified, and they would remain at peace for the rest of Charlemagne's reign. Things would get screwed up briefly during the lives of Charlemagne's grandchildren, but we're not focusing on that for right now. Another round of wars was happening at about the same time on the opposite side of the Holy Roman Empire on its border with the Iberian Peninsula. In the last episode, I talked a bit about Francia's relationship with the Umayyad Caliphate out of Iberia. Long story short, after the crushing defeat at the Battle of Roncesvalles Pass, Charlemagne vowed to personally never lead an army in Iberia ever again. But that didn't mean things had suddenly become peaceful between the two groups. For about two years, starting in the winter of the year 800, the Lord of Aquitaine, aka Charlemagne's son Louis, besieged the city of Barcelona and eventually captured it. Later in 809, Louis led another campaign in order to capture the city of Tortosa, an important Umayyad city in the region of Catalonia. Frankish and Muslim sources seem to disagree on the outcome of the siege of Tortosa. 
The Franks agreed that the city was never fully captured, but was at least forced into submission. Muslim sources say that while the Franks may have originally seen victorious, an Umayyad relief force swept in and rescued the city before it could be taken. So, who knows the truth there? The couple of primary Frankish sources somewhat conflict with each other while all the Muslim sources seem to agree with each other, so the latter is probably the correct story. By 814, the Amir in Muslim Spain recognized the Frankish lands taken during the decades of fighting. Charlemagne would also briefly become embroiled in wars with both the Byzantines and the Danish people on his northern border. The war with the Byzantines was caused when, in 804, Venice, which had been under Byzantine control at this point, decided to switch things up and proclaim their allegiance to Charles's son Pepin, who was then acting as king of Frankish Italy. The war lasted for six years until the pro-Byzantine Venetians took control and gave the city back to the Eastern Empire. This marked the only time the Byzantines and Franks would go to war with each other. As for the Danes, that was another short-lived war. During Charlemagne's war with the Saxons, some of the Saxons, most notably Wittekind, hopped the Saxon-Danish border for protection. There, they told the Danish king all of the horrible stories of the Frankish army. Well, when Charlemagne had seemingly conquered all of Saxony and was now at the Danes' borders, things didn't go well. In 808, Gudfred, king of the Danes, started fortifying the borders between the Danish lands and Frankish Saxony. He then decided to invade the region of Frisia, which was under Charlemagne's control. He didn't get too far because he was eventually assassinated, with some sources saying it was by his own men because they didn't want him reaching the city of Aachen. In 811, Charlemagne signed a treaty with Gudfred's nephew. This treaty would essentially mean Charlemagne had more or less brought peace to his borders for the rest of his reign. strange amount about Charlemagne's life, both his political activities as well as his personal life, due to the fact that he had a very good biographer, a man named Einhard. He was a scholar from Francia who joined Charlemagne's court in 791. Obviously, Charlemagne had accomplished quite a bit by this time, but Einhard had also been alive during most of the emperor's reign. He had been well-educated before joining the royal court, where his knowledge impressed Charlemagne so much that he made Einhard one of his personal advisors. This allowed the scholar an even closer relationship with the king. So, this means two things as far as contemporary sources go for Charlemagne. First, we have a lot of personal details about the guy. For instance, he was 6 feet 3 inches tall and hated it doctors after they told him he needed to change his diet from 5 meals worth of just meat basically every day. We also have plenty of resources over Charlemagne's military campaigns and victories. However, that brings us to the second point. Einhard's scholarly works are obviously very biased in making Charlemagne seem like just that. Charles the Great. For instance, Charlemagne didn't let any of his daughters get married. It definitely wasn't because he didn't want to give any of his empire's inheritance to possible sons-in-law. No, he simply loved his daughters too much. It's also in Einhard's writing where we get the details of Charlemagne's coronation, as well as the whole bit about him being surprised by the event. 
Einhard's biography, Vita Caroli Magni, is definitely a great work of historical literature, perhaps one of the best sources to use when first researching Charlemagne. But it clearly contradicts other historical sources and is far too biased in favor of the Emperor's victories. It instead seems to paint a better picture of Einhard than it does the man the book is about. So should you just skip the Vita Caroli Magni if you want to study the life of Charlemagne? No, you should absolutely use it as a resource, because even if Einhard, like every other historian in existence, is biased in his point of view, he was writing from a place of intimate knowledge. No other biographer of Charlemagne could have written this book. Also, you should be using primary resources when you research. Also, the text itself is just historically significant. The Vita is generally considered the first biography of a European king. Biographies had been written in the past over figures like the emperors of Rome, so that technically doesn't count for some people, I guess. However, it was those very ancient biographies that Einhard was trying to emulate. It's clear that Einhard was well-read and was particularly interested in the writings of Roman biographer Suetonius, a man who wrote about the reigns of the first twelve emperors of Rome in his book The Twelve Caesars. Some of Einhard's descriptions of Charlemagne even seem like callbacks to Suetonius' passages over Emperor Augustus, which would further help in trying to establish the Carolingian Holy Roman Empire as the true continuation of Rome. The Vita outlines most of Charlemagne's life and concludes with the Emperor's death and will. No one knows exactly when Einhard wrote this biography, with dates ranging from 817 to 833. However, it does give us a bit more information over what happened after Charlemagne's death, which is almost as important as what the man accomplished during his own life. By the year 813, only one of Charles's legitimate sons was still alive, Louis, Ludwig in German. Just a few years earlier, Charlemagne had three surviving sons, Louis, Charles the Younger, and Pepin. Under normal Frankish law, the territory of Charlemagne would have been divided among his three sons. Pepin would have gotten Italy, Charles the Younger would have received northern France as well as parts of Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Germany, aka the original Frankish heartland. Louis would have only received southern Francia. However, like I said by 813, both Charles the Younger and Pepin were dead. As Charlemagne was getting up in years, he was 65 by this point, he knew that an official decree needed to be made. On September 11th, 813, Louis was crowned as co-emperor of the HRE alongside his father. This was a lucky move because just a few months later in January, Charlemagne succumbed to an extended illness and passed away. We'll go over the accomplishments and legacy of Charlemagne later, but let's continue on with Louis for the moment. It was clear that with Charlemagne's crowning of Louis that the HRE was beginning to go off on a different path than Pope Leo had thought it would take back in 800. It was the Holy Roman Empire, meaning that, theoretically, the Pope should have a say in who was the next emperor. Charlemagne clearly had other plans. In fact, with the attempt to divide the HRE among his three sons, it was clear that he didn't even think the title was technically hereditary. But now, Louis was very much the second and sole Holy Roman Emperor. Louis was known as Louis the Pious due to his immediate attempts to reform the HRE into an actual Christian nation. It's believed this was done due to Charlemagne's doubts over his empire's piety in his later years. 
the capital of Aachen was cleared of prostitution and his unmarried sisters were sent off to become nuns. Also, Louis made it very clear that he was emperor of the Christians, not all the different ethnic groups that lived within his borders. He sought to make piety a key trait of a European king. And hey, it seemed to work for him, though maybe not as much for most of the European kings that came afterwards. Also, Louis was eventually faced with the same problem as Charlemagne, at least Charlemagne's original problem. Louis had four sons. A year into his reign as emperor, he had made his two eldest sons, Lothair and Pepin, yes, Pepin was a common Carolingian name, governors. By 817, Louis had outlined his plans for succession after having a near-death experience. The empire was originally to be divided in three between the sons of Louis I's first wife, so Lothair, Pepin, and their younger brother who was also named Louis. Lothair, as the eldest, would act as the overlord of the other two. This arrangement was fine until Louis also decided he wanted to include his son from his second marriage, Charles. His other sons refused this offer. After many years of ups and downs, Louis finally passed away in 840. By this point, his son Pepin had also died. That still left his three remaining sons in a place where no one wanted to play second and third fiddle. Lothair immediately stepped in to proclaim himself as the true successor as he had already been crowned as co-emperor back in 817. After battling each other, in 843, the three remaining brothers signed the Treaty of Verdun. Lothair would become the legitimate successor to Louis the Pious. However, his territory would be greatly divided as Francia was cut into thirds. The Holy Roman Empire, less than 50 years after its creation, would survive, but in a greatly diminished position. Lothair's sons inherited the throne, but then it passed on to Lothair's brother Charles. Charles's son, also named Charles, aka Charles the Fat, would become the sixth and final ruler of the Carolingian dynasty. After the death of Charles the Fat and without a legitimate heir, the Carolingian Empire collapsed. Just three generations after Charlemagne, it seemed as if the Holy Roman Empire was no more. The Holy Roman Empire would in fact live on. Though several kings would call themselves the successors of Charlemagne, most historians agree that the next true Holy Roman Emperor would not come around until Otto I was crowned in 962. Otto was previously just the king of Germany. Now, an interesting thing about the German monarchs of this period in history, they were elected. Germany back then was a bunch of much smaller territories ruled by the German princes who would elect a new king from among their ranks. After Otto conquered Italy in 961 and became king of the Germans and Italians, somewhat echoing Charlemagne's king of the Franks and Lombards, he was crowned as the new emperor of Rome in 962 by Pope John XII. Otto's new empire encompassed much of the land that had previously been controlled by the Carolingians, but this was technically a different entity from the Empire of the Franks. This new iteration of the Holy Roman Empire was very much ruled in the German style. Now, instead of being a hereditary position or one chosen by the Pope, the Holy Roman Emperor was elected from the various German princes. When a German prince ascended to the throne as King of the Germans, he was also crowned as Emperor by the Pope. This tradition lasted until 1530 when Emperor Charles V was the last Holy Roman Emperor to be crowned by the Pope. 
When his brother Ferdinand became emperor in 1558, he was simply titled Emperor-Elect due to a political crisis happening at the time. Well, that title stuck until the early 19th century when Napoleon came along, conquered a decent chunk of Western Europe, and forced Emperor Francis II to abdicate the throne, thus bringing an end to the Holy Roman Empire. When Otto became emperor in 962, it was actually just considered the Roman Empire, not the Holy Roman Empire. The same actually goes for the Empire of Charlemagne. Despite Charlemagne's massive territory being referred to as the first iteration of the HRE, it's commonly also just called the Carolingian Empire. The Pope had declared it as a new Roman Empire, but it never reached any sort of holy preconceptions under the Carolingian dynasty. The Empire of Otto was also technically the New Roman Empire. It would not actually be referred to as the Holy Roman Empire until much later. The first time Holy was ever connected with the title of the Empire was during the reign of Emperor Frederick I Barbarossa in the 12th century. Barbarossa had major plans for both Italy and the papacy. Unfortunately, none of these plans could come to full fruition because he drowned on his way to the Third Crusade. In the mid-13th century, the name Holy Roman Empire officially became the name of the nation. The HRE existed in a bizarre place within the powers of Europe. It was a massive political powerhouse, but it was also in a strange alliance with the Catholic Church. After all, Pope Leo III was the one who had crowned Charlemagne. However, it had been the Carolingians who had saved the papacy when it was in dire need. This relationship begged the question, who had power over the other? Well, clearly, Charlemagne thought himself above the Pope. He had gone over the church's reach when he named his son as the rightful heir, and Louis the Pious did this again with his sons. After a couple emperors in, it became very obvious that the papacy required the Carolingians more than the emperors needed the popes. This back and forth would continue over the centuries. The popes would throw their support behind people they wanted to be the new emperor. Episode 23 of this show actually goes into that a bit more in depth if you want a fun but bizarre period of history. Other times, the HRE would simply oust popes they didn't like. It even got to the point where there was a massive argument over who had the right to select new bishops in the church. Was it the pope or the emperor? It was eventually settled upon that the church would select its bishops, but they would have to swear fealty to the monarch. Luckily, it never got to the point where the Empire could formally choose the next Pope, just to heavily imply who they wanted. So, luckily, Charles only lived during the reign of one Pope, because who knows what would have happened had Leo III died during the reign of that man. Charlemagne is often considered one of the greatest medieval rulers of all time, and many times often stylized as the father of Europe. So what does that last bit mean? Well, Charlemagne was the first figure to actually start moving towards a united Europe. And I mean that after European nations started forming after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. While the HRE, both the Carolingian version and the later Germanic version, would never go on to control all of Europe, it invented a world where the people of the continent could come together under a single banner. While in the HRE this meant conquering your neighbors and bringing them under control, it would also end up becoming the idea behind the European Union. His legacy is pretty insane when you think about it. The nations of Europe were a bit scattered after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. 
Yeah, Europe was never truly in a dark age, so to speak, but things really got set back on track once Charlemagne brought control to the former areas under Roman authority. And even though the HRE and the church would have a very bizarre relationship over the next millennium or so, Charlemagne helped keep the church afloat while also curbing its absolute control over European powers. But Charles of Francia was not perfect. He led war after war. If you weren't Christian, you weren't worthy of his protection. He was willing to wage war against the Saxons for about 30 years just to see them come under his control and forced to convert to his religion. Also, the Saxon wars may have started the Viking period. One of the theories behind the beginning of the Viking period was that the Danes felt pressured by the encroaching tide of Christianity. Who was the great Christian power that had pushed further north to the Danes' borders? Charlemagne. The Viking Age traditionally started in 793, right in the middle of Charlemagne's rule. Now, there are many other theories about why the Vikings actually started doing their thing throughout all of Europe, but we can cover that later when we cover a Scandinavian ruler in the Viking era. Nevertheless, Charlemagne became an idealized king for the rest of the medieval era and beyond. The Germans looked up to him when the new HRE was formed. The Normans, who would go on to conquer the British Isles, also looked up to him. His power as a religious ruler would go on to influence later stories of King Arthur. Western Europe would not exist as it currently does if it had not been for the rule of Charles the Great. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're ditching the holy part of Rome and going back to the city before it became an empire. It's the story of Cicero, a prolific writer and statesman who was around during the reign of Julius Caesar and saw the collapse of the Roman Republic. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 